I'm Andrew Constantine, and this is A Stick With A Point. Have you ever wondered what sort of person wants to take on the enormous challenges of running a symphony orchestra? So many moving parts. Cogs and wheels that have to appear to be meshed perfectly and running smoothly all the time. Planning for two years ahead while dealing with tomorrow's headaches. Fostering and supporting an artistic vision whilst keeping a controlling eye on all manner of operational and financial challenges. Well, it turns out that our guest today is just that sort of person. Passionate about the product, mindful of his audience, both present and future, and savvy enough to ride all the waves. Hello everybody, I'm joined this episode by Dominic Parker. And Dominic is the director of the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra. Dominic, hello, thanks for being with me. Hello Andrew. Very nice to, well, very nice to see you. Very nice to hear you. Thank you for asking me to be part of your podcast. Well, you and I met virtually a few months ago, and uh, when we were chatting about all things orchestral then, I thought, wow, this guy's great. I really want to pick his brains as far as he'll let them be picked in a stick with a point. And, and here we are. I'm going to start though by asking you a little background stuff. Usually I, I leave this till later once... Um, once you've relaxed a bit and I've, I've uh, <laughs> uh, got you under control as a guest, but tell me, um, how did you get into music, first of all? Ah, well, um, I, I, I can't really remember a point when I wasn't into music. Um, I, although I suppose well, how I got to this job is quite, is quite curious. I, I was born in Middlesbrough and, my, and I grew up in a small, I started to grow up in a small town in northeast England called Stanley, which had, um, I think at one point, 29 pits, coal mines. Um, and my dad had a pub. They had a pub and a nightclub. My mum and dad had a pub and a nightclub. And uh, uh, they put on live bands. And I went to sleep every night, aged about five, in the flat upstairs to the sort of thumping sound of rock and pop um, music from downstairs in the 1980s. And... Uh, and often we had live bands come to sort of sleep on the sofa when they were performing in the pub. So there's always that aspect of performance. And I sometimes look back and I wonder if that got to me a little bit. But also, um, curiously, my dad, even though he ran a nightclub, was also passionately into classical music, particularly piano music. So um, that clearly rubbed off on me. Um, my mum sang folk songs a lot. Um, and we always had a piano. So I tinkled on the piano. My dad taught me a bit of piano. I took up piano quite seriously. I took up the flute quite seriously. Still play the piano, still have lessons occasionally. Um, but I never studied music. I never ever, I didn't do music at school. Um, academically, I didn't do music A-level. I didn't do music at university. Um, uh, and I guess there are two routes into this job, maybe. Uh, one is if you're a, you become a professional musician in an orchestra and quite a lot of orchestral players develop into orchestral managers. That's one route. But, and the other route is maybe the route I took, which was to be a, a decent amateur musician 
um, uh, and to have a career working in management around musical organisations, um, and to and to learn a different set of skills, but always to have a passion passion for music. My first job actually was in poetry. Um, I did a literature degree, and everyone else I knew went off to the city and made a fortune. And I um, went to live in the Lake District as a volunteer at the place called the Wordsworth Museum, the Wordsworth Trust. Um, and I lived there for three years. And I think I worked for an amazing man called Robert Wolf, who was the world's leading expert on Wordsworth. And he also ran the museum. And he taught me everything there was to know, I think, about managing an arts organization. Um, but then he said to me once, you know, when we, we used to talk all sorts of things, you know, we used to talk about Sibelius a lot and he's I'd never heard of Sibelius at that point really and he used to say to me but whenever we talk about music um your eyes light up and he said you know you're you're great at working in the poetry world but really you should go and work in the music world and uh I don't know if he was trying to get rid of me particularly but anyway I, I went off to I got a job in theatre to start with in London and then I had a very uh actually there's a moment I didn't have a job and I got offered a job by the by a very famous, I won't say which one, very famous uh, English theatre company and an orchestra called the London Philharmonic. And at that point I was penniless and the theatre company were offering me more money. But my heart was with the London Philharmonic and I thought, I was tempted by the money, but I went to the orchestra. And I suppose that was probably quite an important choice, um, not realising at the time. So I worked at the LPO, which was amazing. I worked at the South Bank Centre. Um, and I went over to Cardiff for three years to work at the Conservatoire there. And then I went, I've moved around quite a lot. Then I went to the Sage in Gateshead, which is roughly where I grew up, although it never existed when I grew up. Amazing modern concert hall. Um, and then the job came up in Scotland at the SSO. And all of that time, all those jobs were fundraising, marketing, uh, general management, um, you know, I like to think all of, all the things that are very useful when you put them all together, you know, um, building relationships, finding money. Um, as, but my interest was always in the artistic product. It was always musical organizations. And so now I have all of that, the artistic, the political, the marketing, the audience, the, uh, the money side. Um, so that's how it happened. It was never really a plan, although I think ever since I worked at the LPO 20 years ago, I, I wanted to run an orchestra. Well, it's very interesting what you say about all the fundraising and the politics and all of the other aspects of it and uh, uh, things like that. I want to get into that in a little more detail in a while, um, but I'm also hearing here an incredible melange from the, from the beginning as to how you actually got interested in music. And um, uh, full disclosure here, um, I know exactly the part of the world you grew up in because it's exactly where I grew up as well. Yeah. And um, maybe offline you can tell me what the nightclub was called that your dad was running because I've got a feeling my, my brother was probably playing in one of those bands at the time and maybe keeping you awake at night. But well, the, the clue is in my surname. <laughs> oh, oh, right. Let's move on swiftly then. Very interesting. <laughs> so um, you, you came out of the London Philharmonic and you say mm. after that you went... Was that back to Newcastle or up to Newcastle? No, or I went Bill, to, um, well, I went to the London Philharmonic for four years and then I worked at the South Bank Centre, which was where the London Philharmonic played. Yes. But I sort of went to the other organisation um, uh, and I worked at the South Bank Centre for four years. Um, and of course, that was, 
that opened my eyes a lot because I think when you're with the orchestra, you feel you are the centre of the world. But then you go to the Southbound Centre and you realise actually they have other orchestras and they have solo piano and all sorts of other things going on. Yeah, maybe for uh, some of the listeners who are stateside and mm. elsewhere around the world, uh, we should just say that the South Bank Centre consists of the Royal Festival, Royal Festival Hall, Hall, National Queen Theatre, Hall. Queen Elizabeth no, Hall. No, not, not, not the National Theatre. Although they're oh next my door. goodness, that's across so, the other side of the road, isn't it? Yeah, it's just <laughs> under the, so it's the, it's the Royal Festival Hall, it's the Queen Elizabeth Hall, which is slightly smaller, and the Purcell Room, again, which is yeah. slightly smaller than that. And it's the Haywood Gallery, um, Contemporary Art Gallery. Um, and then the National Theatre is next door. So it's in this amazing complex of arts organisations. And I think the South Bank Centre is the largest arts organisation in Europe by, well, by square foot, probably. Yeah. Um, you know, it's an incredible place. And just on the south side of, of yeah. the Thames. Next to the London Eye and sort of diagonally opposite from the Houses of Parliament. Everybody knows where it is now. So it's the centre, I mean, it's the centre, I think it's the centre of the musical life of the country. Oh, it certainly is of the country, and I think it was of the world for a long time, yeah. in, in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Um, I want to get to the point, though, when you went back north. I mean, Cardiff mm. is wonderful, poetry yeah. is wonderful, but when you went back to Newcastle, the sage, the sage is an incredible yeah. place. It is, it is. I mean, one of the extraordinary things about growing up, even with a music, in a relatively musical family, is I never saw an orchestra. I never saw an orchestra, really, till I was at university. And there was an orchestra the Northern Sinfonia, which became the Royal Northern Sinfonia, based in Newcastle. Um, but from where I was in Durham, which was only 20 miles down the road, it, it somehow wasn't on the radar. And then they built the Sage, uh, which is this amazing Norman Foster um, concert hall, beautiful, shiny, um, modern concert hall, as a home for music and music education in the Northeast of England, uh, which was a real gap. Um, and a home for Northern Sinfonia, and a home for all sorts of music, but Northern Sinfonia where the orchestra was designed to hold. And then all of a sudden, for me, Northern Sinfonia is on the map um, in a much bigger way. And I'd been working in London, and I'd been looking up, you know, industry magazines would come around and look Northeast News, and, it, and I'd see this amazing concert hall being built at home, if you like. And I thought, that looks very interesting. And then a job came up there, and uh, I just couldn't resist. It was the job I went for, rather than the aim to go back to the Northeast. Um, but of course I knew the area well and, and I loved it. And I just had some small kids and I thought, well, this is not such a bad idea to bring them up in the Northeast because um, we couldn't afford a house in the South of England. Yeah, so. yeah. pretty painful trying to do that sort of thing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Whereas there, there are wonderful houses, wonderful architecture and um, an occasionally excellent football team in Newcastle yeah, as well. There's, a, there's an even better football team in Middlesbrough. I would, I, would, I would like to say. Okay, now you, uh, you did that job and that's great. BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra. Now, that's got to be very different from the other orchestras you've worked at. I mean, it's part of a, a colossal corporation. Yes, it is. And of course, the, the BBC Scottish is one of five BBC orchestras. So being part of the BBC, which is the, uh, had always been an ambition of mine as well, um, and it's the most incredible organisation. You know, it's known worldwide. Um, it's it's got a brand that is hugely respected. Um, and I I'd known people that worked for the BBC, and I'd always thought they had something about them. So I thought I'd, I'd like to see what that is. Um, it's and it's an incredibly creative creative place to be. Um, 
it also gets quite a lot of stick in the press sometimes, which is interesting. And like any big organizations, it, there are good things and bad things. Sometimes you think the bureaucracy is a bit heavy, but at the same time, the potential to do things and the reach you can get to audiences is, is enormous. And it, more and more, I'm sure we'll come on to digital things, more and more now, um, what the BBC can, can do um, is extraordinary. So there were, there were, yeah, there were five orchestras, um, the Scottish orchestra, the BBC SSO, um, has a remit around Scotland. Um, we perform in um, all over Scotland when we can, when we haven't got a COVID pandemic going on. Um, all the major cities in Scotland. Um, we perform at the Edinburgh International Festival. Um, the Orkney, well, the St Magnus Festival on Orkney, which is beautiful on the islands north of Scotland. Um, other festivals like the Lammermere Festival. Um, uh, and it, it's, it's an extraordinary job and an extraordinary set of players um, that we have. And I sometimes, you know, I sometimes think, why do we have such a good set of players? And I think it, it's, a, it's a number of things. One is they enjoy the challenge because we get through so much repertoire. Unlike a commercial orchestra, which often would play the same repertoire, or play, there's a, we don't have quite the same um, necessity to, to have a full house at every concert, um, partly because of the BBC funding and partly because of our remit, to, to sometimes find music that is slightly off the beaten track. Um, so it's always interesting. I think it's always interesting for the players. It's always a challenge for the players. They can learn and perform music incredibly quickly. Uh, and the throughput of music is, is very, very fast. Um, and I think they're known, all the BBC orchestras, I think, or, in fact, all English orchestras, but BBC orchestras as well are, are known for that. Mm. Um, so I think, I think we have an incredibly set of, set of, set of players. Um, well, and that's course, one of the, the, the roles of a radio orchestra, isn't it? And, and I wonder as well, mm -hmm. you being at the sharp ends of managing a radio orchestra, there must be times when you feel as though you have to do nothing but sing its praises because things are so wonderful. And then other times when you have to justify its existence, because being part of a, a huge corporation like that, there have often been challenges to the orchestras, the five orchestras funding mm -hmm. um, uh, within mm -hmm. the BBC. I remember... God, it must be 20, 25 years ago now, there were uh, moves to try and axe a couple of the orchestras. And I remember Sir Charles Groves and Lady Evelyn Barbarolli uh, leading a campaign that was successful to, to, uh, to recognize the value of the orchestras there. I mean, do you, do you find you have to uh, um, perform this double act? Well, it, 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 it's a question that's put up quite lightly, maybe every so often. Um, but I think we always argue that the, the value you get for, um, for the money that's spent on the orchestras, the value you get and the output you get um, from those five orchestras is inc incredibly good value. You know, it, it, uh, and when you think about some of the costs of other things, you know, the cost of, the cost of TV, you know, I don't know how many, um, if you took all the orchestra budgets together, um, how many hours of EastEnders you would make, but not very many. You know, or, or something like that. You know, it, it's. I think it's incredibly good value for, for what you get. Um, and is that uh, an uh, argument you have to develop? Do you, do you actually go into <laughs> into meetings ever say, no, we we're incredibly good value. You could only make three episodes of EastEnders or whichever soap opera. It, it might not be a very wise argument to make. There was a report done um, about, uh, about five years ago uh, called the Myasco report, uh, which 
the conclusion because the BBC management had said, you know, can you check out the value of, you know, is it good to have these orchestras? And it was a, a, a strong conclusion that the BBC orchestras were incredibly good value. They supplied a huge amount of content to Radio 3 um, and it's, it's the lifeblood of Radio 3, if you like. Um, uh, and I think that still holds. Well, I, I've always found the BBC orchestras incredibly uh, flexible as ensembles. And as you say, mm. versatile, incredibly skilled as well, and fast readers. And sometimes you get up on the podium and you think, okay, what am I, what am I gonna do in this rehearsal? How am I gonna plan this rehearsal? And you find yourself like 20 minutes ahead of where you ought to be. And uh, it's simply because of the skill sets yeah. and the rapidity of getting things done. You travel around Scotland, is that repeating concerts or are there other aspects of the orchestra's work? Is there education work, for example? There is, there is. We, we do travel around Scotland. We do, we, do, we do sometimes repeat things, but at the same time, uh, we tend to do our maybe most bold repertoire in Glasgow. And then if we were to go to Aberdeen or Inverness or um, Perth, we might do something a little bit more popular. But nevertheless, we still we still like to take things there, and they want us to take things there that are perhaps more challenging than um, normal fare, if you like. And I think that's that's our brand and our reputation. Um, and yes, education work is is um, is is a huge part of what we do. Uh, and one of the things we've started to do more recently, I mean, it's a challenge because you only have a finite amount of time and a finite amount of money. So do you try and spread, spread yourself quite thinly across a, you know, a whole country or do you pick specific places and try and have a deep relationship educationally, if you like? And that's our tactic at one level at the moment. So we're developing a relationship with a place called Campbelltown, which is on the Kintyre Peninsula. And a couple of years ago, before the pandemic, we... We took the whole orchestra there. There hadn't been an orchestra there for 10 years, any orchestra. And so we went, uh, we sent a sort of um, forward party, smaller group of musicians who, who worked with mums and toddlers and then in different community settings and then across all the primary schools. And then we built it up, more musicians came. And then by the end of the week, we had the full orchestra. We did, we did uh, after the workshops, we did full concerts for the primary school, all the primary schools, and then a full concert for the secondary school. And then on the Friday night, we did a full concert for the, effectively the mums and dads in, in the town hall. So we think we got to every member of that community um, to the extent at which there were people, um, kids in the supermarket saying, oh, look, there's that, there's that clarinet player we saw at school yesterday because he was buying his sandwiches the next, the next lunchtime. So we felt like we really made an impact. And yeah, that's and, the best sort of impact, I think. I really absolutely. do don't think that, you know, small kids are being exposed to what happens when you, when you play an instrument, play it in an mm. ensemble uh, and this sort of thing. And they relate to it when they, they meet these people who aren't um, up on a cloud somewhere. Yeah, they're just normal people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they, play, they play something. Um, and do you find that the BBC is a great place to be for educational resources? Are, are there projects yeah. you can liaise with? Well, um, there are two levels. There are, there, there are BBC um, uh, projects that are BBC wide, something like 10 pieces, which is uh, uh, a, a big um, pan BBC project to introduce primary schools all across the UK to music. So effectively they took 10 famous pieces of music, um, but filmed them and uh, filmed them in places that 
not not concert halls. Films have been interesting places with with lights and with presented by famous people that the the kids would know. And then it went to all the primary schools and all the primary schools watch it. So now they start to understand what an orchestra is and understand some of the music. Now there've been four editions of that now. It's still called 10 pieces, but effectively it's 40 pieces. Um, and uh, the BBC SSO has did the fourth edition. We did pieces 30 to 40, if you like. And it gets more and more interesting. You know, we, we get more and more diverse repertoire um, as you get down to, you know, 30 to 40. Yeah. And it, it's fascinating. And the BBC, I suppose, has the power and influence to try and do a project that gets to all the primary schools in the UK. Um, is, that, we, uh, is that something that's, um, that's um, um, what's the word, um, trademarked, copyrighted? I'm sure it is. because <laughs> I'm taking notes now, and if, oh, you, if you find it I, gets used over here, it's me doing it. I, I don't know what the, um, the the commercial proposition is there, and and to what extent it's international <laughs> or not. But um, mm. but it's it's a great thing, and it also takes a, uh, an inspired teacher sometimes to pick it up and 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 show it. But you know, it, it it's out there in in the world, um, and and I bump into little kids, and when I say I work from the BBC, they say. Oh, we've seen ten pieces, so you know it's really it's really had an impact. Yeah. Um, and there are there are other things in the, in the in the pandemic. We did a project again across the BBC, but with the orchestras uh, called Connecting the Dots, where we we had all these musicians uh, uh, who couldn't work for at a, at a particular moment, and so we we got the musicians to um, zoom in to schools where, particularly the key worker schools. It's time when the, the children of key workers were still at school. So their parents could work in the hospitals and etc. Well, a lot of the, a lot of the um, kids were still at home, um, and so we were trying to help the key worker children by giving them workshops online and use our musicians to connect with them. So, and that all the BBC orchestras did that, um, and so we we combine those big BBC projects with our own local Scottish education work, um, and of course we do we do ten pieces concerts of, of those famous pieces but as schools concerts. So we use the theme that 10 Pieces has created to, to build on when we do schools concerts. You touched on something there that, that interests me as well, and that's um, talking about the orchestra's activities during the, the pandemic. Have you been forced to engage with ideas, um, develop ideas that you were interested in before, but you thought, you know, maybe that's too much to, to bite off at the moment and, and you just had to go for it? Well, um, I suppose it's it's absolutely turbo boosted our digital work, but perhaps that isn't a surprise. I think it's probably done that to everyone. Um, although I think it, it it really has. For example, when we couldn't get when we couldn't we couldn't get to the proms last year, uh, and we really hoped we could, but we couldn't travel to London. Uh, and so the BBC said, "Well, we'll we'll do it live online on iPlayer, which is the BBC's platform." Um, for all of its programs for, for playback, although you can also do things live. Um, and effectively, our in-house team produced a live prom from Glasgow, the first ever prom from Glasgow, um, live on iPlayer. Uh, so we sort of, we kind of had the, we had the kit and we had the team in place, but we weren't doing anything at that level or that profile at that point. So it, it really pushed us. And now there's a much bigger conversation going on about the BBC orchestras having a home on iPlayer. Um, so I think the BBC have embraced its orchestras, you know, on a, on a, on a higher profile, which is, which, is, um, which is fantastic. I think the, the other thing that we, 
just starting to think about is, um, about, and we should have thought about it before, but different types of concerts. For example, we, we always go to, we tend to go out of town, or we, we tend to travel on a Friday night and go to different places around Scotland. What if we can't do that? And we'd always, we'd always assumed that we'd be able to do that again by now. But, but it's looking like, at least in the autumn, we might not be able to. So what do we do with those Friday nights? And all of a sudden we're thinking, actually, this is the opportunity to um, do late night concerts, maybe do uh, different sorts of concerts, cabaret style, people being in, uh, you know, a little bit more social where people come in groups of, groups of five rather than the traditional groups of two. And we do something quite different, which is not necessarily a new idea in the orchestral world. It's quite an old idea in a way, but, but we've never done it. Mm. And it's yeah. partly because we've never had the schedule of time. And all of a sudden we've got opportunities on it. And I think that the interesting thing is we're planning it at relatively short notice, potentially planning it at three or four months notice. Whereas normally you're planning at two and a half or three years notice. So does that cause you to go into creative overdrive then and, and, and really I, push the boat out? I think I think we've I think it would have done a, 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 it would have caused a certain amount of panic a couple of a year ago. Now everyone's so used to the idea that actually we can embrace short term planning. It, it doesn't need to be quite so scary, but it does. It is exciting and it's creative, and it's different. Um, and I think there's quite a clamour um, for doing things differently. And it's interesting that the pandemic has perhaps inspired that. But I, I think it has. And some of the things that we've often thought about maybe haven't been brave enough to try and do. Um, maybe now we are. But it's also because it's a solution to a problem that's been thrown at us. What do we do on a Friday night? Exactly. But also as part of a corporation being a radio orchestra, you have the latitude to do that. You can pivot in a way that the London orchestras, the freelance orchestras and other orchestras like that aren't able to do. They, they need some sort of guarantees or they need sponsors to help help uh, secure that, that uh, yeah. Um, uh, project. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I suppose that's, you know, what's the attitude to risk, isn't it? And, and you would think that our attitude to risk is we're quite, we're quite strong because um, uh, uh, maybe we don't have the same, quite the same financial pressure, but actually we're, it's still quite hard to change, to do things differently. Um, and to take risks, I think, is quite difficult. And it, and it, it's. I don't know if that's a, a consequence of, of um, just the idea that we've always done it like that. So why change? Yeah. But actually, we are being forced to change in 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 lots, in lots of ways. Pluses and minuses of being part yeah. of a, a great institution yeah. like I mean, that. That, of course, the um, we are only funded by the BBC, which is a great privilege. Um, but at the same time, we don't have. Some of the some of the pressures and um, drivers that some of the London orchestras might have to do things differently from outside forces, if you like. Mm. So, um, yeah, I think I think that you know we we have to constantly challenge ourselves because actually no one else is doing it. Do you think that might ever change at the BBC? And the reason why I say that is that I look at some of the international material that the BBC puts puts out or is um, has. Uh, licensed out to to other places and there are commercial sponsors of those platforms not of the creation of the content but the platform that mm. that content goes on and I've always thought that in a way the BBC is missing opportunities if uh, 
for touring and things like this if you can't mm. ally it too much with um, uh, with a commercial sponsor. I'm sure the mm. sponsorship would have to be vetted and all of that stuff, but do you think it might change? I suspect it will. I can't say too much, but I suspect that... Um, I mean, there are different rules for the BBC in the UK as opposed to overseas. So the BBC has an international commercial arm that is uh, more aligned with, um, not so much sure about sponsorship, but with commercial opportunities. Whereas you can't do that in the UK so easily. Um, and so, you know, the, the example is, um, is Britbox, for example, which is this thing that you can now buy in America, um, which is a collaboration between the BBC and ITV. And it's to sell free content, free in the UK, but now let's sell it abroad. And that's a big change for the BBC. And that's only happened a couple of years ago. Yeah, for any of my friends over here in the US who aren't familiar with Britbox, get onto it. It's yeah. great. It's great. It's got all the best TV from the BBC and ITV over the last sort of three decades on it, um, which is, in the UK, it's free. But so I suppose that there is, I think there is an opportunity. And I think it's being thought about, you know, what if you put the BBC orchestral content on something like Bitbox? How would that work? Yeah, I think that uh, that would be very revealing, actually, and, a, and a, a watershed moment. I personally, I think that some aspects of, of radio orchestra's work is, is held back because I called it I called it sponsorship, you called it uh, something else. And uh, I don't think there's a real difference if it's a, a commercial entity that's that's helping pay the bills. But that's that's interesting to talk about. And um, uh, I want to get on as well to to whether you think that the role of a radio orchestra in the modern world is changing or will change what you see as the future for such as the SSO. Um, well, actually, I heard an interesting phrase the other day. I was on a, I was on a call to um, the European Broadcasting Union, which is the, what we're part of, um, that also creates um, the Eurovision Song Contest and things like that. Um, and I was on a call with radio orchestras um, all across Europe. And a phrase that is starting to be used is, um, is, a, is, is a media orchestra rather than a radio oh. orchestra. And I thought, it was, I thought it was very interesting because, of course, yeah. we, are, we are all traditionally radio orchestras, but more, and we're very, very um, familiar and comfortable. Our musicians are very comfortable with microphones. Um, and they're just starting to get more comfortable, starting to get more comfortable with cameras. And, of course, the thing that's changed is that uh, we're streaming more and more, as, as all orchestras are. Um, I've mentioned iPlayer. Uh, we put things on our own website a lot. And all of a sudden, um, we're, there's this phrase multi-platform, which the BBC uses a lot. You know, you're putting content, the same content on radio, the website, potentially on TV, and you become not just a radio orchestra, you become a whole media orchestra. And I think we're adjusting to that because I suspect that's the new, the new world we're going into. Um, again, slightly injected by the pandemic, um, it, it, uh, we're, we're getting used to that. And of course, that um, I think you know, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting thing for the players because they're not, as I say, they're not as comfortable, some of them, with, my, with, um, with being on TV. Um, it's, it's, it's an interesting development of all the teams that we have because we're set up perfectly for radio. We have an in-house radio team. We have an in-house studio. We record and broadcast everything we do on radio. Um, we, whether we get to a point where we 
um, visualize, to use the jargon that the BBC use, everything that we do on, on a website. We may not go quite that far, but certainly it's, there's more and more happening. So our teams are changing. Um, I think fundamentally, broadcast still remains absolutely heart of what we do. But the place that we put the broadcast is, is changing. So you think that on the internet will be more viable, um, easier to achieve than a terrestrial or cable-based um, arts channel, BBC Arts Channel, which has always been a, well, a challenge? Um, well, I think the, the, the opportunity is, to, is for the, if the quality of the, of the digital streaming is as good as it, as it can be, then it can also go on an arts channel as well. There's no reason why it shouldn't. And that's, that's why there's such a, such a strong conversation going on about multi-platform, you know, making things that work for everything, because obviously that's better value. It can be, it creates more content. Um, it doesn't mean that I don't think radio is still important. Radio is still hugely important. And I think radio has, has really had a boost in the, in the pandemic. You know, the Radio 3's, BBC Radio 3, which is the main channel for classical music on the BBC, has had more listeners than, than, than previously. Um, and the Radio 3 is very keen to hold on to them. And so it's thinking, how do we engage with audiences on the radio? How to engage with audiences digitally, um, visually? And, and I suppose that's, that's what we're, we're all trying to grapple with. Of course, it costs a lot of money. <laughs> so um, It always comes back to that. Yeah. yeah. Well, it sounds like you have an incredibly varied life in, in your role as director of the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra. And you have um, aspirational um, projects ahead, which are part of the corporation and which are individual to the orchestra as well. That must be very exciting for you. But tell us about Glasgow. Tell us about the cultural life of, of this amazing city. Mm. Well, it is an amazing city. And I, say I didn't know it particularly well until I took this job. Um, it's it's incredibly vibrant. It's incredibly vibrant. Someone said to me, there's more live music in Glasgow than any other city in the UK apart from London. And I absolutely believe that's true. We've got two symphony orchestras, uh, ourselves and the Royal Scottish National Orchestra. And and we are quite distinct. We do different repertoires. We're good friends, but you know, we 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 uh, there's got to be clear water between us. That's that's very important. Um, there's the Scottish Chamber Orchestra who play in Glasgow. Um, there are other ensembles like the Scottish Ensemble, the Dunedin Consort, the Scottish Opera, of course. Um, there are youth orchestras, National Youth Orchestra of Scotland, National Youth Choir of Scotland. Um, so I think that the, the musical life is, the musical life classically is very strong. Um, there's an amazing festival in, uh, in January called Celtic Connections, which is the folk tradition, brings in the folk tradition from all over the world. Um, uh, and and that, is, that is huge. Um, and of course, the, there's the Edinburgh Festival, there's the Edinburgh Fringe, um, there's other festivals I mentioned already. Um, so it's, it's an incredibly vibrant uh, city to be in. And there's a lot of young people. There's, a, there's two or three universities, so there's thousands of young people. And, and I've always, I'm always quite pleased with the number, the percentage of our audience that, it, that comes that is actually young. There's always a complaint that audiences are getting older and older. Um, uh, and to some extent that's true, but also there's a good contingent of young people coming to our concerts, um, some students. And a wonderful conservatory as well. And a fantastic conservatory as well that we work very closely with. And I go to for my piano lessons when I have a moment <laughs> to practice. 
Oh, good for you. Good for you. One of the now, one of the wonderful one of the wonderful to say is um, just think about that folk tradition. Is one of our first violinists, uh, brilliant first violinist a guy called Alistair Savage, um, is also one of Scotland's leading folk musicians, and that's in a way that's his first love is the folk music. And when we went to the Orkney Festival or the St Magnus Festival to give it its proper title, founded by Peter Maxwell Davis, when we went up there a couple of years ago, we did three three concerts uh, at the Orkney Festival, and then but then at the, at the festival club, you know, at ten o'clock at night, um, Alistair Savage he um, he did a folk a folk gig, um, and all the orchestra came to watch, and it was a proper part of the festival. But his the versatility that he has is is extraordinary. Um, you know, to see him playing uh, whatever he played in, in the main concerts and then to, to have the energy to get up on stage. And I think he played for about an hour and a half, you know. And of course, all the other great violinists in the orchestra saying, wish I could do that. You know, I can't do that. He's got the, he's got the tradition in his blood. And I, think, I just think, to me, he embodies, to some extent, he embodies the, um, the musical culture of Scotland. Now, Dominic, you're obviously having a, a wonderful life in Glasgow and uh, it sounds very colourful, very exciting. Last point about the orchestra, though. What, what do you think is going to be the biggest challenge for the orchestra moving forward? Orchestras in general, let's say. Mm. Uh, well, I'd, I'd say the, the biggest challenge, the, the sort of hottest topic of conversation, if you like, um, for orchestras and for the industry is, is diversity and inclusion. Um, and how we address that. I mean, it relates directly, I think, to current affairs and some of world events. Um, but in a way, we're, we're, we're in, orchestras are 19th century beasts to some extent. And how do we, how do we modernize? How do we engage people? How do we look, especially now I mentioned being on camera so much more, how do we look relevant to audiences? How do we reflect the audience that we are playing to? Um, how do we attract people and how do we engage people in all, in all areas of society? And I, I think, I think that's what we're all trying to do. And it's challenging and it's hard, but, you know, simply put, there are 50%, well, broadly speaking, 50% male and 50% female people in the world, but why are there not more female conductors? Why are there not more diverse conductors? Um, and I, it is starting to change, um, but uh, some people say it's not changing fast enough. Um, and of course, some people will say, no, it doesn't need to change at all, but I'm not sure that's what I think. I think, um, I think we do need to make a change. Um, I think we need to discover some of the composers that have been perhaps neglected, because perhaps- Well, that's been... always been true, hasn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Um, but those people who have been neglected because the people making the decisions were perhaps of a certain type. Um, I mean, I think the BBC, I wouldn't say the BBC is cutting edge at this, but we're trying to catch up. We're trying to do our bit. And I think collectively, there's a message coming out of the BBC orchestras that we take this seriously. Um, we're commissioning equally now men and women, that's a commitment. Um, and I think we're, we're changing the culture. We're trying to change the culture within our orchestras. Um, our management teams are not massively diverse. I'm very glad to say that the players in my orchestra are roughly 50-50 men and women. But if you look at orchestras 30 years ago, that wasn't the case. And so um, the, the gender equality has caught up a great deal. But I think there are other areas of equality where we still need a lot of work to do. Um, but I mean, I, that probably is another topic for maybe another podcast because it's mm, huge. Yeah. But I, well, I think I, it's I, important, I, and I yeah. think we're all we're all doing our best to address it. Uh, we're all doing our best to address it, but we're all tiptoeing a, a little bit around the language until it's all 
firmly established as to as to what areas we're really talking about. And here in the States, it really is um, a hot topic, as you say. Um, some people advocate for orchestral auditions to be uh, behind the screen. Others say they shouldn't be behind the screen. So what was a battle 20 years ago to get the screen put up there to create this uh, notion of anonymity is now being challenged. I don't quite know what the what the right way to do it is, but I do know that classical music, the business of classical music has been its own worst enemy for decades, yeah. uh, probably forever. And that we have nothing to lose, but everything to gain yeah. by being more diverse in as many ways as possible. I hope that can happen in a, um, a natural and organic way. Uh, rapidly would be better, I, I suspect. Um, hey, I'm saying too much. I'm interviewing you, so you talk. One, one of the one of the things we're trying to do is, and, and all of this all of this has been debated hotly. There are different opinions on it, uh, but we're trying to have a um, do it on several levels. So we have a, a, a kind of education program within our within the orchestra. So we had, in fact, I think two days ago we had a session with all the players um, on inclusive language. Exactly, said, you know, what, what's the language we're meant to use? And I think people do sometimes feel uncomfortable. So we're trying to. Uh, take away that discomfort and say these you know this is here's the here's the language that we can use um and we've had training sessions from um, disabled artists we've had training sessions from musicians from ethnic backgrounds and to raise awareness more than anything else and again some people agree and some people disagree that doesn't really matter the point is that we're raising the awareness within the organization of course the Big, big discussion about the, the pipeline of musicians and where do they come from um, and how can we help, um, like I mentioned, youth orchestras and conservatoires, how can we help the youth orchestras and the conservatoires and everyone else that maybe, uh, that's a very traditional route, of course. So, you know, we'd think, do it, not everyone comes to a traditional route, um, but we want to broaden the, broaden the, um, the makeup of an orchestra. It'll take a long time. Um, but we've got to make a first step. And I, I think maybe we haven't done it in the past because it's difficult. And I think it's going to take a long time if we want to bring everybody with us. Mm. Well, I think the other, the other hot debate is, you know, do you set targets on this sort of thing? Yeah. And actually, actually we, we kind of have um, because it's the way to make change. But again, it's hotly debated, is that the right way to do it? Is that the right thing to do? But if we let it happen organically, it perhaps will never happen. I think it's beyond that now. I think it's going to happen. It's as simple as that. This this last year has changed things on a scale yeah. much bigger than, than ever ever seen. And um, that, as I said, that can only be for the good ultimately. I agree. Hey, Dominic. So I am going to ask you the ultimate question, which is, looking at you, you've got a lot of years left in you yet. But when your years are done, what's the one thing? you want to be most remembered for? Wow, that's an interesting question. Um, uh, I said, well, being very honest, I, I think what gives me great satisfaction is when I have a team of people, and I feel I have a team of people at the moment who I work with, who, um, who work together well, and didn't feel it was hierarchical, but felt as though we did a good job together. And 
it's not about it's not about being liked, but it's about um, feeling that we did a good job together and that those years were good. I suppose that's a wonderful answer. So, Dominic Parker, thank you so much for being with me today. It's been great fun talking to you. Thank you very much. The BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra's Dominic Parker. Very much a man for all seasons and just the person to be guiding one of the finest symphony orchestras in the UK. Next time my guest will be an old friend from the UK's Midlands. Andrew Jowett was, for 25 years, the director of the Town Hall and Symphony Hall in Birmingham. He'll tell us how he managed to shape the country's oldest and newest concert halls into one of the world's musical powerhouses. I'm Andrew Constantine, and you've been listening to A Stick With A Point. <laughs>